today we're talking about the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Uh, we are also talking about logical fallacies, as our listeners voted on on our Facebook group. And so we'll be talking about those two topics today. We'll just kind of see where it goes. The, the Ukraine conflict can go in a million different directions. And so I'm interested to hear what you all think. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the sanctions that countries have put in place on Russia um, and the implications that those have, specifically some of the financial restrictions and the international banking system uh, restrictions that have been put in place. As far as logical fallacies, after that, we'll talk about those. Basically, what are logical fallacies and why are they important or why is it important to know about? So, yeah, let's start with Ukraine and Russia. One person says it is a really bad situation and the biggest refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. Yeah, there's been a ton of people seeking refuge, seeking to flee not only Ukraine, but other surrounding countries, because the thought is that, you know, even countries outside of Ukraine may not be safe, that Putin may not stop after Ukraine if he were to, to succeed there. We also got a comment that said, I'm also surprised by how badly the Russian military has been performing. I think that's been a shared sentiment uh, from, from a bunch of people. There have been images circulating of, of less than technologically elite equipment uh, that the Russian military is using. And I think a lot of people believed that they would be using more high-tech, more, more state-of-the-art equipment or tanks or, or vehicles or what have you. And as someone commented, not just equipment, but bad coordinating as well. We had one comment that asked to hear someone else's opinion um, who is Ukrainian uh, before presenting their extremely controversial and unusual opinion. Um, Yuri, if you'd like to kind of give everyone a rundown of, of what's going on and, and the situation, um, I know you had mentioned wanting to talk about that. Uh, yeah, yeah, this is something I grew up around, man. This is um, really, it's like the kind of the last ripples of World War II echoing out, we can hope. I'm pretty emotionally invested in it. I've, I've been banned from Reddit now, which, you know, it's a very trying time. I have family over there and stuff. It's pretty crazy. Um, everybody has these different ideas as to what is going on. Um, and just from the Ukrainian perspective, it's like the East and West have been playing tug of war with us for tug of war with us for like centuries now. And so we're stuck. Uh, you know, you have Eastern brutality you know, just the, just the in-your-face mafia, like, I'm going to shake you down. There's nothing you can do about a behavior of, like, that Russian, Soviet-style stuff that, like, have the whole Slavic world is like, no, we want nothing to do with that. And then on the other hand, you have the West, where it's like they're robbing you while pretending that they're giving you money. It's really weird, um, like, the, the different kinds of evil, the different kinds of corruption in the two different systems. And it's like, you know, right now Ukraine's being used kind of um, like in order to justify NATO's existence, you need the Soviet Union in order to justify the, like the military spending and the militaristic and fearful and authoritarian attitude of the Soviet Union, you need the decadent West. And so like what Putin has done is like forced, forced hand. So he goes crashing in Ukraine. Um, and meanwhile, like my grandfather was uh, in the Ukrainian insurgent army which is a whole other thing. Like he had to get fake papers and stuff to get in the States. It, it was the, um, 
I'm not sure if he was under Bandera. I think he might not have been, but there, there were a few units. And so like the Banderites, uh, following the, like the, just the travesty that took place during World War II, like, you know, um, the Soviets used the Nazis this way. Everybody used the Nazis as this boogeyman. It's like, you know, if somebody's a member of this group, they lose all rights, like very much like Hitler used the Jews. It's this boogeyman, it's just take, you know, it's this uh, this scary thing. Anyway, you want to ask me a question because I just kind of lost my train there. No, you're good. Uh, I actually wanted, I was hoping you could jump into something that you mentioned there at the end because Russia is still using that as part of the rationale for going into Ukraine. They've cited neo-Nazi groups as as part of the reason for, for going in there. So it's interesting that you cited that and it's still kind of, at least partially, still the boogeyman in this situation. I can expand on that. Sure. Um, okay. So just imagine, imagine like being born during those freaking times. Like you're born in the roaring twenties, you know, um, there, there was like some brief periods of Ukrainian independence in between wars, like the Ukrainian Republic that like didn't quite stand up and some various other things. And then you have the Soviet union where it's like people come pouring across the border with horror stories. I mean, you would not like just the, the absolute brutality of these people it was just it was insane. You know, like my father's father, um, you know, he was like five years old and they come up to the house and they're like, hey, you don't live here anymore. And what like kind of gets me is like he had like a favorite pillow and they wouldn't let him keep it, you know. And then he, during that time, it was like the whole Adomor, which is when they systematically like they made it illegal to eat. They, 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 they like systematically took food from everybody and they made Ukraine starve in order to feed the Soviet mechanizations all over this big empire that they're so proud of, you know? And meanwhile, in Ukraine, it's like people are starving. People have been, you know, battlefield World War I, battlefield World War II. It's anyway, bottom line is there, there was all kind of, like people were genociding left and right back then. Uh, let's just say like the, the Soviets come in and then you grow up and you basically have like, like those kids who in the Middle East, whose like parents get bombed and they wind up terrorists. You know, it's like there's just this collateral damage, this massive trauma. And so, um, like, I, I, there definitely were like atrocities committed. And the Soviets, though, like the thing is, they had a vested interest in playing those up as much as possible and then casting anybody throughout all of history who wasn't for Soviet dominant rule as a Nazi and somebody that needs to be punched, as, as you might say, if you were a uh, blue hair. It's not like this is unique to Soviet Russia either. I mean, this is something that you see with all sorts of aggressive or violent countries that if another country does anything that gives them any amount of ammo to then direct back at that country, we see this with China as well, that you know while genocides are going on with weaker Muslims, that they will criticize the U.S. for supposed human rights violations in various contexts. And, you know, again, point the point the finger and create the boogeyman. We'll probably come back to you, Yuri, at some point. Yeah, um, I'm a rambler. Okay. No, no, you're yeah. fine. Um, I just wanted to give Dave an opportunity to jump in. Um, I know he had said he wanted to hear your take and then uh, then wanted to give his own controversial take. So, Dave, if you uh, want, the, the floor is yours to jump in. Sure. Um, so 
the thing that mystifies me about um, this conflict is how everybody suddenly seems to have forgotten about Hunter Biden uh, prior, you know, prior to this conflict, this was something Republicans were talking about, the um, conservative media were talking about, uh, Glenn Beck and people like that uh, were talking about it on talk radio, it was a common topic. And now it's like, now that we have this, this war basically going on, um, everybody seems to have forgotten about that. And the presumption is that Joe Biden is on our side against the Russians. And my position is that Joe Biden is not on our side, that this is a, you know, Yuri mentioned, mentioned in, in his discussion there, the, uh, the brutality of the East and the extortion of the West. And so in the West, our politicians are at the highest levels, use foreign countries as their piggy banks, and they run extortion rackets and Joe Biden is now famously documented in multiple places as you know, having had his son, Hunter, installed in Burisma's board. And Burisma is a huge energy company in Ukraine. And I think pretty much everyone here probably knows the details of this. I don't need to re reiterate all of that. Joe Biden is on camera in front of the Council on Foreign Relations um, bragging about how he threatened to withhold a billion dollars of so-called aid from former President Poroshenko, okay? I'm pretty sure most people have seen that video. Um, so he's bragging about this quid pro quo that he did. Um, and of course, everyone knows that the corruption that he was really concerned about being turned up was the corruption of his own family in uh, the Ukraine. Uh, so then... Um, he managed to get Viktor uh, Shokin fired. Viktor Shokin was the prosecutor under Poroshenko who was prosecuting, who was, who was investigating Hunter Biden's involvement with Burisma. By the way, if Yuri wants to chime in on any of the things I'm saying here or contradict anything I'm saying here, uh, he might be more of an authority than me considering that he seems to have lived there. So then in May, 2019, Ukraine elected its current president, I believe it was in May, uh, which is Zelensky. And he's a nationalist populist celebrity who's kind of similar in my mind to Trump. Um, and he's not rich like Trump, he's not fabulously wealthy like Trump is, but in many other ways, um, I thought that he and Trump were very analogous. And he was overwhelmingly elected, I believe, it was like a huge majority elected him. And um, he ran, I think, on a platform of trying to clean up the corruption uh, going on in Ukraine, which is hard to do when you've got the, you know, the world's giants desperately, constantly trying to uh, corrupt you. And then in July of 2019, uh, a couple months after his election, uh, Trump called Zelensky to congratulate him and asked him to resume Chopin's investigation of the Bidens. And I think he mentioned the Bidens by name. But anyway, you can find the transcript of that phone call in multiple places online. Um, and the result of this innocent request was that the Democrats, everybody remembers this, they rapidly attacked Trump and then they impeached him, trying to remove him from office. And you know they don't have, they don't like to have the rocks lifted off their cockroaches. So um, their projection of Biden's quid pro quo onto Trump is so obvious that you have to be saying, I'm like some kind of fool to miss this. I mean, you know, Biden bragged about it on camera, and then they accused Trump of doing precisely that same thing when in, you read the transcript of his call, and there's no such thing going on there. So then. In 2020, um, somehow this Shokin's uh, investigation got resumed. 
And the current prosecutor was a guy named Konstantin Kulik. And he had an assistant named Andre Derkosh, excuse me if I'm butchering these names here. And these guys actually made a video in which they detailed their accusations against Biden and his family. And you can find this video online fairly early, uh, easily. Just look up those names. Kulik, K-U-L-I-K, Constantine, first name. So then what happened was both these guys were later smeared and they were removed from their positions. They were accused of corruption. They fell under criminal investigation and they were booted from office. Isn't that amazing? Um, and the organization that supposedly polices um, corruption in Ukraine is called the National Anti-Corruption Bureau, which oddly, this bureau was created and financed by George Soros's Open Society Foundation. And this is not just innuendo. You can go to the Open Society Foundation uh, website and you can see them talking about their creation of this organization. So oddly enough, the guy who polices corruption in Ukraine is George Soros. And that's just an astounding thing. So George Soros is basically accusing anyone who goes after Joe Biden's family as being a corrupt person and manages to get them from removed from office. And if you want any idea of the power of George Soros in Ukraine, there's a book that was recently published called The Man Behind the Curtain. It's all about Soros. It has a whole chapter dedicated to George Soros and the Ukraine. I'm just going to read you a short paragraph describing uh, out of this book. It says, the Russian language Ukrainian newspaper Vesti, I presume that's a newspaper there, publishes a list of the most influential 100 people in the country at the end of every year, choosing Soros in 2019 as second only to President Zelensky. The prime minister took third place after Soros. It is just kind of bizarre to me that all of this stuff is going on with Soros and Biden in Ukraine, and suddenly it has disappeared from the media, including the conservative media. Nobody's talking about it. It strikes me that Putin is providing an incredible service here to Biden. Um, under the cover of this so-called war, uh, Putin can exterminate all the evidence, both human and written, against Biden. And it strikes me that Biden would have to be extremely grateful. And I'm sure that Biden is not the only guy who's been involved in milking um, Ukraine drive through this kind of extortion. So my position is that Biden is actually, actually complicit in this and that his apparent outrage at this whole uh, incursion is completely manufactured and false. So we got one comment in response to that that said, uh, I think it is a bit reductive to boil this whole complicated situation down to the Bidens and Soros. And No, it's not just those two. Uh, obviously, so Putin has long wanted the eastern provinces of Ukraine, and he wants a warm water port on the Black Sea. So obviously, Putin gets a big piece out of this. But in my opinion, the people who voted for Biden basically signed Ukraine's death warrant. They went from having Trump, who would have protected and who would have not uh, tolerated one way or another. He would at least have warned uh, Putin not to do this. My, in, in my imagination, I'll admit, uh, what happened was Putin, you know, Biden called up Putin and said, okay, it's time for you to move in. You know, the Republicans are potentially gonna have a majority in Congress this um, starting next year. If they get, uh, if they overwhelm the Democrats, 
And they will be in a position then to do a serious investigation of Biden's uh, involvement in Ukraine. And isn't the timing just really interesting of all this? So obviously it involves, it involves Putin very heavily. P Putin gets lots of goodies out of this also. He gets the eastern provinces of Ukraine and he gets a warm water port. I hesitate to just give my take, and I'll obviously give you all a chance to jump in and, and say what you all think too, um, especially since Brandon has left, right? I don't want this to just devolve to my views and my views alone. I do think it puts a little bit too much faith in Biden's capabilities to to navigate that complicated of a situation. I mean, that said, there was, like you said, a lot more focus previously on uh, his and Hunter's dealings with Ukraine and with Burisma and, you know, the, the associated corruption, and that has disappeared. Uh, but I don't, especially after watching his State of the Union address, if it is, if there is corruption between Biden, Soros, and Putin, I wouldn't put the blame directly in Biden's lap, because I'm sure that it would be someone making those decisions for him. Um, but that said, you, you bring up a, a good larger point of the focus being put entirely on this conflict. Um, one other similar criticism that I've heard is regarding to COVID policies. Um, there had been statements by uh, the Canadian government, and I, I, I'm not positive on other countries specifically, so I'll refrain from naming any others by, by name, but at least by the Canadian government that were in support of Ukraine, in support of freedom, and in support of democracy, and you know all of the platitudes. While there were uh, simultaneously very controversial anti-freedom measures taking place in those countries. In Canada, we had talked previously on this podcast about the freedom trucker movement, and we had seen bank accounts being frozen of the of the protesters, and we had seen me the measures that were being protested were the vaccine mandates and the vaccine digital passport system. And so I've seen similar similar to what you were saying, Dave, about the focus being taken away from Biden and corruption in Ukraine. Focus has also been taken away from those policies, and I think that one point that I've heard made about those is that, well, if this conflict is to grow larger and take more and more focus, will that focus ever come back to those issues, right? Will the focus ever come back to potential corruption and corrupt dealings between uh, different governments? Will it come back to COVID policies or, or other things like that? Um, or does it just set the precedent then that whatever has been done up until this point is now deemed acceptable because it has at least been ignored and you know not not addressed. I'd like to jump into specifically some of the sanctions that are going on. There are a handful of travel and trade and other restrictions going on depending on the country you're talking about, but one of the largest or at least most impactful group of sanctions have been the financial sanctions. There have been has been a push to disconnect Russian banks from the international financial system that it has absolutely decimated the value of the ruble. Um, and it's it's impacted 
the country as a whole, their ability to continue the to continue funding the war effort, um, but it's also affected the Russian citizens and other countries as well. And as someone just dropped in the comments now, they just removed access to Visa and MasterCard as well. Um, and so what do you all think about these sanctions? Is this, this obviously raises the question of what should we do in this type of situation, but it also raises the question of what should countries be able to do and what are the implications of the sanctions that are being put in place? We got a couple uh, comments in the chat. I'll read through and obviously feel free to keep chiming in. Um, but we had one person say that it does seem to be using Ukraine as a pretext to impoverish the Russians and as a pretext to steal. Uh, we had another person that said uh, they don't think it's doing much to Putin, but is hurting the people mostly. And someone then said that it sets a disturbing precedent. Uh, Dave, yeah, feel free to jump in. Yeah, um, I think Putin um, is a very smart guy. And I think he anticipated all of this. And I don't think he needs us. I don't think these sanctions, um, yeah, they're going to hurt. But you'll notice the biggest sanction that, uh, that Biden could have imposed on them, which would be to drop the prices of natural gas and oil by increasing uh, US production, he's refraining from doing that. And that gives me another um, reason to believe that um, Biden is complicit in all of this. And it's obviously, we are financing this. The, the, the wholesale price of natural gas in the last year globally has almost doubled because of Biden's energy policies. And he's done more to finance this war than anybody in the world. And everybody now, if you have a gas-powered water heater or a furnace, anything, every time you pay your gas bill, you're financing this war. And I don't think there's anything accidental about that. I think this is all completely coordinated and intentional. I also think, um, regarding your comment before, that it's extremely dangerous to underestimate Joe Biden. Uh, yes, he does on stage give the appearance of someone who can't really, you know, kind of fumbles around and can't really get sentences out necessarily that well. But I think it's a terrible mistake to underestimate his, um, his capabilities. Sure. And Joe Biden is also separate from the, the Biden administration. So regardless of Joe Biden's ability himself, there is still an entire administration behind him still setting policies and, and guiding governmental action and, and we got a comment responding, Dave, asking whether Biden purposely fumbles around and pretends to have dementia. Dave responded, says, no, he doesn't pretend he's not very good on stage. But yeah, someone, so someone commented earlier as a topic for conversation, um, asking about how this relates to the truckers in Canada and discussing how the precedent this sets. Um, so what do you all think about, about this precedent and about intervention on this level? So this is where there's been a lot of discussion about the implications that this has for a cashless society, a society where you rely on Visa or MasterCard or money transfer systems that are controlled by either central banks or that the governments have a hand in. Do you think that this provides a new or rather reinforces an existing 
use case for crypto or, you know, what, what do you all think? Um, yeah, sure. Yuri, go ahead and uh, jump in. Yeah, I think uh, this is, I, I, I don't know. So assuming the narrative that there is some kind of underhanded league of people that are just kind of gaming the whole system, uh, this is clearly just a bunch of moves in order to manufacture consent for it. It's like you go from the truckers, nobody wants them honk their horns anymore. And then everybody's way all, all behind like locking transactions and stuff. And it's being celebrated now. Oh, we have another bad guy. We can block their funds. But then like the, with the tech advancing and everything, it basically is, it, it's going to make it so that we don't own anything. Well, and we had talked previously, uh, I know we talked previously when we talked about when we talked about the trucker movement in Canada, and we talked about it then, but I, I know we've also talked about this previously uh, when Brandon was co-hosting in various capacities, but this idea of using language to then browbeat or label political dissidents or political opponents as enemies or as terrorists or what have you. And I think the the implications of these financial sanctions and freezing of assets and freezing of accounts in combination with this trend to label political dissidents as extremists or terrorists or you know pick the pick the extreme name. I think you bring up a good point that it does it does set a dangerous precedent that how long is it until something other than Russian invasion of Ukraine or a less extreme example, protesting of COVID mandates and COVID, COVID requirements being labeled or leading to someone being labeled in that way? You know, how long is it until it's something more minor? Um, and so that's the concern that I've been hearing from a lot of people. That's the one part of why I've seen more people flocking to crypto, more people flocking to, you know, physical cash, uh, as opposed to relying on some of these systems, because that 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 fear is is real. Um, when when you hear not only from from governmental individuals, but from normal people, for lack of a better word, normal people describing others as domestic terrorists or as, as enemies. And, and this is, I'm not trying to pin this on one side or the, or the other, right? You have people on the left cl classifying individuals involved in the January 6th as terrorists. You have people on the right classifying Black Lives Matter or Antifa as terrorists. You have people on the left classifying Trump voters as as enemies, you have people on the right, right, this kind of, and, and again, you could argue the merits or, or lack thereof of any of those individual accusations, but the reality is that on both sides, there are people being labeled as terrorists or extremists or other, other names that would justify, at least in in line with the logic that is being used would justify putting in place some of these restrictions. Um, so yeah, so it's, 
it's an interesting topic. I'm, I'm curious to hear what you all think. If anyone has any other thoughts, um, I'm going to turn it over to Dave really quick since it's on the same topic. Uh, and then we'll turn it right over to, to the other person. So Dave, go ahead and jump in. And then the other anonymous person, as soon as uh, Dave's wrapped up, uh, feel free to jump in and cover the topic that you wanted to. Sure. So I know it sounds like I'm, I'm obsessed with Biden here, but this is a guy who's just got too much involved here to somehow be innocent of what's going on. So regarding this whole thing on calling people Nazis, Putin uh, is now broadcasting to his population that he's denazifying um, the Ukraine. Uh, so this is just this utterly preposterous thing like, uh, yeah, right, Putin is afraid of neo-Nazis lurking around a neighboring country. This is so utterly ridiculous. But again, there's a Biden connection. If you remember shortly after he was elected, Biden said, um, in so many words, he said that white supremacy is our biggest threat according to our intelligence services. So he's implying that the neo-Nazis in the United States, who apparently are lurking around every corner and they're under every rock or whatever, this ridiculously weak and, uh, and a low population group is somehow the greatest threat to the United States. This is greater even than China with its nuclear powers and its, and its Navy and all this kind of stuff, no neo-Nazis in the US. And I find it just astounding the correspondence between the BS that Biden and Putin are both putting out to their populations. It's, it's, it's too incredible to be a coincidence. So I'll yield. Hi there, namaste everyone. Uh, great to uh, hear a, a real conversation about the situation because you won't hear it in mainstream media. It's so lopsided uh, and uh, quite, uh, they're really distorting the facts and uh, not even laying out the groundwork for why this happened. Uh, uh, we should have seen this coming because the red lines were drawn and they were crossed. So this was the eventual consequence that nobody wants to uh, admit. Uh, my uh, uh, the point I wanted to make is 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 relevant. Um, it's actually about um, India's abstention in the UN uh, should be a, a non-event. And suddenly it's become this huge news piece, which I find quite disturbing because I follow Indian politics and I think that uh, it's so uh, dangerous for America to be sort of doing this to an ally and painting India suddenly as the bad guy here when it's not even their own, like India didn't start this war. It's not involved in the war. It's not fighting the war. It has nothing to do with this conflict. And yet it has somehow become um, the, the the bad boy, uh, at least in, in some sort of um, media factions. Um, you know, the only thing I would say is it's the largest democracy in the world. It, number one, it has a right to uh, its, uh, on how it votes in, in the UN. Every country will look at its own national interests. Every sovereign country has a right to uh, vote according to their adversaries and their threats. And India has done that. Also, it is the only country that has this non-aligned foreign policy strategy. It's had that for 75 years, where it actually doesn't take sides between um, uh, uh, it, you know, uh, uh, the US and um, uh, Russia. The point I'm making is instead of talking about China and COVID and why 
you know, this whole conflict has escalated. There, uh, the mainstream media is making points about things that has that have nothing to do like this India abstention. Again, you might not follow international news, but it, they've tried to make it a hot thing. And it's ridiculous as somebody who follows. And, and also the it rises all sorts of unnecessary hate and suspicion towards an ally. So that was the only point I wanted to make. Um, if you want to sanction Russia, you should be sanctioning uh, many other countries, uh, starting with China for their uh, you know, involvement with COVID and how they uh, were not uh, open and transparent. And to this day, we don't know what, what the hell uh, they're uh, in, you know, uh, the damage that they've done because they've covered it really well and there were no sanctions and no sanctions for other terror harboring uh, nations, you know. So I think uh, the sanctions are ridiculous and it will backfire because I think Russia has made uh, themselves uh, pretty um, sanction proof, I would say. Um, so yeah, that was just a point I, I wanted to make, you know, um, yeah, it's a bit sad to see comments when everybody else is talking about things uh, relative to the conflict and they didn't get bombarded, but somebody wants to talk about, you know, an international issue uh, that is very much involved with the conflict. And I mean, it, it, how are you better than, than what M MSM is doing? You're going to shut down valid concerns, you know. Well, and I don't think anyone's trying to shut it down, but I, I will echo the the lack of knowledge that's coming in from the comments. I haven't heard of a lot of what you're referencing either. And so I do think that a lot of people, um, you know, haven't heard, a lot of people don't follow international news yeah. and, and haven't but, but found a guys, lot of this. But you guys should, you really, and this is the problem with America. They're so insular. They don't know what's going on around the world. It matters. You know, it really matters. And that's why MSM is able to distort facts and you don't even know that you're being lied to because you don't follow what's going on. And it, America is not the only country in the world. There is a whole world out there and the two greatest populations are not in North America anyway. So what they do matters. It actually brings us back to another component of this conflict that I was hoping to, to touch on. And we did, we did get a couple comments. Um, one person said that they agreed with with what you were saying. Other people um, taking more of the approach of kind of like you were saying, who cares? The you know the involved countries should be Russia and Ukraine. One person saying, well, in also involved in that is the USA. Um, you were talking about the media, and I think that there's two different things that I'd like to get everyone's thoughts on. Um, the first of which is the censoring of Russian media, which I think is is going on. I don't want to say everywhere, but lots of different companies and lots of different news organizations, lots of countries even are are blocking or limiting access to Russian media. And simultaneously, there have been a number of I guess stories or reports, or some of them have just been memes about Ukraine that have turned out to either be partially or fully untrue. And so there's the the old saying that the truth is the first victim of war um, and the this idea of propaganda and 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 rallying of your country has always been a factor. Um, but now we're kind of in the era of social media and the rapid spread of 
information. There have been the ongoing concerns about misinformation from largely the political left. And so this kind of falls into that that realm of discussion. And so I'd like to get all of your thoughts. Should we be censoring Russian media on the off chance that they are, quote unquote, the bad guy spreading bad information? Um, And simultaneously, where do you make the distinction between an urban legend and propaganda and misinformation? Because some of these stories that have come out, right, they've been in varying intensity and and seriousness, right? There's been stories of the ghost of Kiev. There was the story that the former Miss Ukraine, I believe, was out fighting for Ukraine when in reality she was just posing with, uh, I believe, an airsoft gun. And there was the story of Snake Island where initial reports were that Ukrainians on Snake Island told the Russian warship to go fuck yourself. And then all of them were slaughtered by by the Russians afterwards. And then later it turned out that not only were there more than 13, but that they weren't necessarily all just slaughtered after 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 boldly standing their their ground. Um, So someone chimed in in the comments and said it is complex. And sometimes Russia does totally lie bold facedly. Um, And so it's a complex situation. So what do you all think, whether about the difference between urban legends and propaganda and and fake news reporting around war, and then this idea of censoring Russian media. Uh, Dave, you wanted to jump in? Go ahead. So just a little backstory here. This whole COVID thing and the censoring of qualified doctors and other scientists has really gotten my ire up about the media. One of the things that just drives me nuts is when uh, someone will be talking about the Joe Rogan thing, and they'll just you know, blithely use the term disinformation. Well, Joe Rogan is presenting disinformation and therefore, um, so right away they cast this moral thing to it that, well, Joe Joe Rogan is doing a bad thing. And my question to anyone who says anything like that is, who qualified you to determine what constitutes disinformation? You know better than Dr. Malone, who supposedly is the inventor of the technology behind the vaccines, you know more than him that he is spouting disinformation and that you're qualified to censor him. So I'm completely outraged at the entire censorship approach. I have watched RT many times and I know that I'm watching RT. I'm not stupid. And it's like, I know that it's going to present the Russian perspective on stuff. And I know that it might contain a lot of lies. Well, I don't think RT could possibly tell more lies than the American mainstream media does. I've sh- I, I haven't watched a mainstream media newscast probably in 15 years because I can't stomach it. The lies all day, every day, are just too much for me. So for, for someone to say that RT lies more than the American media, to me, is just utterly preposterous. The idea that any, quote, news source should be censored is basically saying, well, Dave, you're too stupid to figure out what's true and what's not true. And we're going to decide for you. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a sentiment that I've heard numerous times, right? There's the, the, the ongoing, I suppose, point of disagreement is whether people have a right to truthful information, right? whether people have a right to be told the truth and, and have information presented to them that is factually correct, you know, or whether, like you were saying just now, 
whether it is a personal responsibility to investigate your your sources and investigate the news and see what is and is not true. We talked about this a little bit in in a previous episode. There is this push, not just with Joe Rogan, but in in lots of different contexts. And I think one thing that Joe Rogan brought up, and I may have brought this up in a previous episode, forgive me if I did, the information that was presented from what are deemed credible, reputable sources would have, by the current definition, would have been classified as misinformation a couple months ago because of evolving, well, both because of evolving data and evolving understandings of COVID, but also because of changing policies and diktats from from the government, right? And, And views on changing views on masks, for example, or changing views on transmission post-vaccination or on any of these areas where we've learned more or we have started to maybe be more honest about our interpretation of the the research or the surrounding facts. And so you bring up a good point of who makes the call of what is or is not mis or disinformation and the precedent that that then sets. We've kind of been talking about this a lot. And I want to be clear that nothing that I'm saying in the in the course of this of this discussion is meant to be pro-Russia, right? But in the context of defending free speech, you almost always wind up defending the unsavory character, the unsavory speech. I was talking with someone on the sub-series that we recently recorded, Academia Uncensored. Uh, shameless plug. If you haven't listened to that, go listen to it. It's really great. But I was talking to someone on there about this concept and this idea of misinformation and the precedent that it sets. Once you deem something quote unquote bad enough, there is now a line that something can be bad enough to be censored. And it's a matter then of who controls where that line moves or where that line shifts to then be able to say, well, now so-and-so, now Joe Rogan, or now insert anyone else, and now Steven Crowder, now others that are, have been censored, now they are considered past that line and should be censored just like we've censored RT or just like we've censored Alex Jones. And so it's an important question. It's an important question of, of how do we handle that? And in the context of war, do different rules apply? This is something that I've heard come up as well, and I'd like to hear all your thoughts on it, but the saying goes, all's fair in love and war. Are there different rules that are in place in times of war? Is it, quote unquote, more okay to pull some of these things, or does that make you unprincipled or hypocritical? I'd say that it's, it's extremely dangerous to advocate censorship anytime, and that in times of war, it's even more important to not have censorship. Um, you've heard the famous saying, I don't remember the term exactly, but it's like the first casualty in any war is the truth. Okay, so you know that you're going to be exposed to an enormous propaganda program anytime any conflict anywhere is going on. And during those times, it's more important than ever for people to have access to alternate sources of information, whatever they may be. I'll go further than that. There's an incredibly incredible naivety in the United States to to trust these government agencies. People trust the CDC and the NIH. Okay, so back in 2020, I spent a lot of time researching the stuff that the CDC and NIH were doing and they were saying, and it's like, 
a lot of it was just not true. A lot of the data they were presenting was just not true. There was a clear, incredible predisposition to inflate the COVID uh, numbers and to, uh, and, to and they, they simply set insane medical and, and hospital policy that was designed to make it look like we were in the middle of this incredible catastrophe when in fact we were not. Um, it's also uh, very naive for us to be trusting the climate data that's presented by NASA and NOAA. Okay, this data is heavily manipulated. It's not the raw data, temperature data from earlier in the century. If anyone who goes to study this stuff knows that there's an enormous pushback uh, of people who can't afford to be too public about it, otherwise they'll get fired. So all of these agencies, the CDC, the NIH, NASA, NOAA, these are all political organizations. For people to believe that these are staffed with pure scientists who are, who are practicing pure science and that our government is giving us the, the, the best data that it's possibly gotten, all this kind of stuff is just utterly ridiculous. And then it's all filtered through our media. Have you ever watched the news programs or, or if you watch the just general programming on the media and how much of it is now sponsored by pharmaceutical companies? I mean, there's a pharmaceutical ad probably running at least one every half hour on, on, on mainstream TV on every channel. I mean, they, they have so much money now, they can blanket us with advertising. Just look at the pharmaceutical ads to believe that our media is not massively influenced by these advertisements and that this source of revenue is just utterly ridiculous. So I, I am completely opposed to the idea that we can turn off RT or that we can turn off any alternate news source because our own news sources are so utterly corrupt. Who is to say that somebody else is worse? And one of the comments actually brought up the coverage of uh, Uyghur Muslims in China during the Olympics and how they were overly positive about China and that whole situation because they allowed, I believe, uh, one of the Uyghurs to carry the torch or something. And, and there was a lot of kind of, oh, this is a slap in the face of countries that have criticized China for this. And, and so you do see some of this, maybe that one is specific to China, not Russia, but, but you do see examples of this in, in American media as well. And obviously I have my own issues with, and plenty of people have their issues with the mainstream media here. The other, the other issue that this conflict has brought up and that I've seen a fair number of times, at least in the world of social media, is the idea of gun rights. Do you think that this provides new context or new evidence for the discussion of gun rights and ownership of guns? There is a near constant conversation about why an individual would need to own a gun why an individual would need to own specifically an AR-15 or other or large capacity magazines. And what we are seeing right now in Ukraine is the ordinary citizenry becoming armed and standing up against Russia. Someone had commented early on, I think we had missed it, um, that Russia essentially planned to go in steamroll Ukraine and be done and have this be a blip and immediately over because they would just go in strong arm and just decimate them. But it turned out that they met a lot of resistance in Kiev specifically, but through the Ukrainian citizenry 
taking up arms against the Russian troops. There's the old quote, and it's it's debated whether it was ever actually said. Um, and I'll probably take flack because people have also been criticized for saying the the quote and not necessarily caring if it was true or not, but I don't necessarily care if it's true or not. The quote was, you cannot invade mainland United States. There would be a rifle behind each blade of grass. And this was disputed, but it was said to be said about the U.S. during World War II. It's this concept of if you were to invade, yeah, the citizenry is going to be taking up arms and combating you. And you'll have that to deal with, not just the military. So this situation in Ukraine with Russia has kind of revitalized some of these discussions and I've seen them going around. So what do you all think on in terms of gun rights and gun ownership? Do you think that this is evidence that the average citizen should and can own weapons of their own and be prepared for something like this? Or conversely, do you think it's evidence that in situations like this, the government can come in like the Ukrainian government was in certain circumstances and provide the citizens with weapons, and then they can serve that same purpose. I think it's a real hoot that all these celebrities who uh, spend their time advocating for gun control, so-called, um, are now these same people are saying, let's take up, you know, let's do a GoFundMe to provide arms for the Ukrainian people. So the, the hypocrisy is just kind of bizarre, but it's a little more complex than that. The, the idea, I mean, there's this saying, again, uh, when guns are outlawed, only outlaws will have guns. So the whole argument behind gun control is a first to start with. Um, the state in the United States, to the best of my knowledge, that has the highest per capita ownership of guns is Wyoming. How many times do you hear about so-called gun violence in Wyoming? It's just ridiculous. This is this whole idea that the mere availability of guns causes people to pick them up and start using them against each other is just utterly preposterous. So there's obviously something behind the whole gun control movement that has nothing to do with any kind of um, altruistic desire to reduce casualties. The thing that, you know, is the, the people shooting in Minneapolis, which is where I live, basically, they don't get these guns legally. <laughs> these are kids in gangs. The guns are coming across the border. They're coming from other sources. Nobody is buying guns legally and doing crimes with legally owned guns. It's the whole argument is so utterly preposterous that it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to even get my head around anyone who kind of makes this argument. Um, the idea that I'm going to, because I happen to have a gun in my house, that I'm going to pick up this gun and go out and commit crimes with the gun because the gun is there. It's so ludicrous, but it, there seems to be this endless inability to quash this ridiculous argument. Can I just make a point? Yeah. Um, so two points. One is, I don't know what the gun laws in Ukraine are like, but it's very, very dangerous to arm civilians the way that they've been doing. And if they're making a, a hero out of all of this, it's, it's very dangerous because these aren't trained combats, right? Uh, and they end up becoming a liability. And to even throw women and young people uh, or old people uh, in, in the mix. And I mean, there's so much coverage internationally that Ukraine is using its citizens as human shields. Um, I don't know if that news has reached here, but 
it is it is true you know you have to be very careful and um i think um with as far as russia goes uh, i mean again I, as i mentioned earlier the red lines were discussed and they were crossed so everybody should have expected this it's i don't know why eu nato uh and even ukraine itself is so surprised that this happened because russia has been saying that it will do this very thing for the past 8 years that line was not crossed in so far in the 8 years it 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 did about a, a few weeks ago right um and as far as the uh the media censorship goes it's like whose rules and who made them because uh censorship if you want to go for censorship you should censor across the board it should be all sorts of media that you think are being who are distorting and that would include much of american mainstream media so i think you can't okay let's censor uh you know people who are having different points of views or let's shut down rt because it's state sponsored but let's keep uh, the chinese uh, propaganda uh, loud in, and somebody mentioned the olympics absolutely that was you know they or oh, everybody uh, was talking up the olympics and completely forgetting their human rights abuses for decades right so it's like it seems like it's a different law for different nations and it's it's that's a dangerous game to play uh it's not fair and that's not what democracy is about that's not what being uh you know uh anything freedom independence morality if you want to talk about all of those things that's none of those things right so i think this is a really dangerous point a kind of a turning point in some ways and uh, i do i mean they're talking about a ceasefire so things will calm down in a in a month or so but i think the hypocrisy of the west has been unlifted you know or it has been unmasked let's say for the world to see and i don't know if you guys care about what the rest of the world is is thinking um about the us but they have some very strong opinions and the way that the us has gone on with this conflict their point of view hasn't helped and uh, so i think it's time for america to take a step back and uh, you know reflect on what its role is in the world because it hasn't exactly been the face of morality uh, either so those were just my points i'd like to agree with the previous speaker's uh, earlier uh, point on this idea of arming civilians is going to somehow influence the outcome of this war people who have any military background or familiarity with america uh, with the military know that you just don't you know hand people guns and say go defend yourself now and it's like you probably they will do more damage to themselves and each other uh being untrained and the idea that they're going to go up against a trained military and they're somehow going to make some difference to me is just really preposterous i know i have a daughter who's in the national guard and she tells me about the kind of training they go through in order to be effective in their use of weapons and such and a a, a ragtag group of untrained civilians is going to be mismeet in front of Uh, a trained military unit. So it's really ironic that the people who advocate for gun control in in ordinary circumstances where gun control is not going to make any difference are now advocating for handing guns to civilians when probably they're just going to get themselves killed and being emboldened and running out in front of trained troops and getting themselves shot. So it's ridiculous. Um one of the other participants here a person named Mr. Man who seems to only chat but not speak uh, is saying that there is um correl- correlation between gun ownership and gun deaths yes there is a correlation between gun ownership and gun deaths there are more accidents 
there are more, um, and there is more likelihood that somebody will pick up a gun and use it um, in the situation where people do have guns. But this is not the driving force behind the, the quote, gun violence that is constantly popularized in the media. Um, I'm in Minneapolis again. There are carjackings now every day, armed carjackings. And again, these kids who are doing these armed carjackings, they're not getting their guns from the gun store. They're getting their guns on the street. So, so Yuri had uh, one thing that he wanted to jump in with. Actually, Yuri, if you don't mind, I wanted to jump really quick on two points. I see one person that had spoke, uh, I think left. We'll see if, if she comes back or not. But I, on, on her point that she was making, I just wanted to jump in briefly and say that I, while I agree that there is an important conversation to be had about the United States or the West more broadly's role in some of these international disputes and their own human rights violations or their own corruption or their own you know issues i also think it's important to emphasize that comparing some of these western countries or the united states to the communist uh, chinese party or to Putin and Russia, while there is a place in the conversation for acknowledging the wrongs of the West and of the United States, I, it's also important to acknowledge the difference in scale between some of these problems. I mean, yes, the United States has done bad things as well. The West ha- and Western countries have done bad things as well. They have committed human rights violations. They have performed, I, I guess, depending on which country you're talking about, right, what they have or have not committed will vary. But generally, what I'm trying to say is that, yes, everyone needs to be held accountable for the bad things that they do. But at the same time, I do think that we need to acknowledge that there is someone, there are countries doing much more bad at a much larger scale to the point of either invading and decimating countries or performing genocide on certain religious groups. And the list goes on. And I think that it shouldn't take our focus away from that. I've seen similar criticisms about Israel and Palestine during this whole conflict and how, where is the support for, depending on who you're talking to, where is the support for Israel or where is the support for Palestine in these conflicts while these same people are going and supporting Ukraine, but they stay stay silent on that conflict? Well, I'd I'd like to dispute you there with regards to the gravity of the West's uh, and specifically the United States' transgressions on the world scene. So George Bush, George W. Bush, lest everyone think that I'm strictly down on the Democrats here because of Biden, George W. Bush gave us this enormous lie back in 2003, 2002, 2003, about weapons of mass destruction being um, developed in Iraq. This was one of the most ridiculous, insane excuses to invade a country that I have ever heard in my entire life. And I couldn't even believe it. The the media would actually carry this and that he was not ridiculed off the stage or that he wasn't somehow removed. And then he went and he blew up Iraq. And I mean, he killed, I presume, hundreds of thousands of people, as far as I know, died in the Iraq war, completely based on this ultra ridiculous farce that George W. Bush, that George W. Bush should be tried for crimes against humanity and should meet the same fate that the people at Nuremberg did, in my opinion. So this is an atrocity. This is an unbelievable atrocity. Uh, And the real reason for that, this is a whole other subject that we could do a whole other thing on, is that the United States holds all of 
OPEC hostage. Okay, the reason that the dollar has value in the world and the reason that the rest of the world subsidizes us is that the U.S. at gunpoint requires all the OPEC nations to sell their oil to the rest of the world in dollars. And that means that anytime anyone in the world wants to buy oil from OPEC, they have to sell stuff to us at a discount to get the dollars, and then they can take their dollars and go and buy the oil from OPEC. The reason George W. Bush invaded Iraq was that Saddam Hussein was selling oil to, it was, it's an OPEC nation, and they were selling oil to um, the uh, Europeans in euros. And that was why we invaded and blew up Iraq. Obama did a similar thing with Libya. So Gaddafi at the time was talking about establishing a gold-backed pan-African currency called the gold dinar. It would have been a gold-backed currency, unlike the United States, which is just pure paper money, or it's not even paper, it's just a bunch of numbers that somebody creates out of nothing. So Gaddafi was trying to um, establish a currency to break the hegemony of the U.S. dollar across Africa, which impoverishes Africa in order to subsidize us. And um, Obama's response to that was to go in blow up parts of Libya and uh, drag uh, Gaddafi out and, ex and assassinate him. So we have two assassinations and we have, you know, Libya is a mess today. It has never recovered from Obama's attack on it. Um, it's now in a state of just general chaos. Um, so the, uh, at the atrocities that the United States commits on the world stage on a regular basis are unspeakable. And uh, Yuri was just commenting, saying this sets up for what he has to say. So Yuri, if you want to jump in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the the U.S. just the things the U.S. has done are and the way they're able to spin everything, it, it's just such, such a completely different beast than the Soviet machine. But what everybody seems to be overlooking in all these conversations talking about the geopolitical situation is, you know, this is Ukraine. This is, you know, when when the wall came down, like my dad went over there to try and do business, uh, setting up a coal plant and. It was like bureaucratic bribe seeking after bureaucratic bribe seeking the whole process through and eventually it, it, it all fell through. And it was like this one guy had a whole shipment of coal and my dad finally got everything kind of like sorted out but then that guy had sold it uh, without telling him. And so it was just it was a whole mess right and then one of my dad's partners was like you want us to uh, go and talk to him, as in go and go and kill him, and, and, you know it's like a it, it's just such a mafia kind of state anyway bottom line is this is like that's kind of the russian influence right and ukraine has been struggling to escape that for you know 30 years minimum and it's just it's it's a slog right and i don't know it's just like thinking about it from russia's perspective kind of seems to deny the agency of ukraine and the whole thing it's getting a little late um, and we I promised the people on Facebook that all voted for it, that we would talk about logical fallacies. Um, so before I don't want to segue too bluntly, um, but so before we jump over to talk about those, at least briefly, does anyone else have anything else they would like to say about the situation with Ukraine and Russia? Um, anything that we've covered today, just to Briefly sum up, we talked about the sanctions and the handling from the U.S. and the West. Specifically, we talked about the financial sanctions and the implications for, for society, having sanctions like this, having repercussions like this, assets or accounts frozen. We talked about 
guns and gun control, talked about pretty much everything. We talked about propaganda and media and some of the stories that had come out and censoring of RT and Russian media. Um, so if anyone has anything else they want to talk about, about Ukraine and Russia before we segue, feel free to jump in now. Otherwise, we'll, we'll move to logical fallacies. So I'll give it a second in case anyone drops any comments or, or wants to talk briefly, and then we'll move on. Okay. So if someone happens to be typing a longer message and we get it, then I can go back and, and read it so that you have a chance to say what needs saying. But we'll move on to logical fallacies. Um, we won't talk too long about this. We'll probably bring it back up in a, in a future episode as well. This is something that I think is worth talking about in more depth and at more length than we probably have the ability to do now. But people wanted to talk about logical fallacies. And I think that it's, it's something that we probably should have talked about earlier in this show, given the subject matter and the, the focus on discussion. Briefly summarizing what logical fallacies are, essentially a way of handling conversation that doesn't abide by logic. It, it is an aspect of or a component of your argument that flies in the face of logic that for any number of reasons could have holes poked in it. And it leads to conversations breaking down a lot of times. There are numerous of them, so we obviously can't list every single logical fallacy in existence, but I'll list off a couple that you may or may not be familiar with, but some of either the more common or more commonly discussed ones. There are logical fallacies like appeal to authority, where an assertion is essentially deemed true just because of who is saying it, the position or the authority of the person that is asserting it. We see this a lot uh, recently, especially with COVID policies and COVID mandates with statements like trust the science or trust the scientists that if a scientist makes a claim, if a doctor makes a claim about something, it is likely or certain to be true because of their credentials. Um, but you also see it more broadly with credentials, uh, people appealing to authority for PhDs and degrees getting you a job that maybe you don't deserve, but you have the letters behind your name or, you know, people designating certain institutions as trustworthy because of the people in them or, or things like that. There's appealing to emotion, which is manipulating the emotions of the person that you are having the discussion with or using emotional reasoning for your argument as opposed to valid logical reasoning. There's all sorts of other appealings, appeal to tradition, appeal to motive, appeal to religion. And, you know, as, as someone just commented, they say it said it's a way to win an argument, try to win an argument by cheating. Uh, I'm right because insert here and there is no more discussion to be had outside of cultural or religious reasoning. Essentially, yes. And some other ones, there's ad hominem personal attack is a really good example of this, where you just attack the person making the argument, not the argument itself. Other examples, correlation is not causation. What is does not necessarily dictate what ought to be. There's also this concept of whataboutism, which is a term that's ar arose more recently, but it's kind of a combination of a red herring, which is introducing a second argument that's irrelevant to the first primary argument um, and takes the focus away. Um, there's also the concept that two wrongs don't make a right, 
that sort of plays into whataboutism every so often. And then the U2 fallacy, which is the idea that an argument is flawed just because the person making it doesn't abide by that argument, right? They're being hypocritical or they're not acting consistently with their argument, even if the argument itself is true or factual or logical and the other person is just maybe not a great representative of that. So this conversation could go a couple different ways. I don't want it to just be a lecture, me telling you all about what logical fallacies are, because that's not the point of this the point is discussion. Let me know either in the comments or if you want to jump in verbally, what your thoughts on logical fallacies are. Um, the one concept that I wanted to pose, I wanted to see, and Dave, I'll, I'll turn it over to you right after this. When is it or is it not appropriate to acknowledge logical fallacies? Because I think that while they're important and while they need to be understood and discussed, there are times where people will take it too far to the point of always calling it out when someone has a logical fallacy in their thinking processes or in their, in their conversation. And the reality is that while logic and facts are primary components of every topic and should be the primary things guiding debate and, and solutions and things like that, when you're having a discussion with someone, emotions do still exist. Religious or, or faith-based experiences and beliefs do still exist. And illogical aspects of a person's rationale will still exist. And so all that to say that not everything in every person's risk assessment or in every person's discussion style will always be logical. And so it, when is it or is it not appropriate to call that out and to ensure that you're having a logical conversation or debate or, or what have you. Dave, uh, you can feel free to jump in. Yeah, well, I think it's appropriate to call them out when um, they're obviously being used um, as a mechanism, you know, either as a mechanism for just simply uh, refusing to, to actually engage in a rational discussion or when they're used as the basis of an irrational argument that's being used against you. And I'll give you two examples of those. So um, I post a fair amount and I usually get into arguments with people on the political left. When I post, I post data. I go, I spend enormous amounts of time coming up with my opinions and I always reference them with verifiable or, or at least extremely good arguments that are usually made by other people who are more knowledgeable in the subject than I am. So I'll do something like post a YouTube video of someone explaining who knows a lot more than I do about a particular subject like climate change, for example. And uh, I will say, well, look at this information here. Isn't this interesting? This, this would seem to dispute the popular um, opinion of this whole thing. And the person will come back to me and they'll respond immediately with, well, that's a YouTube video. And it's like, oh, everything posted on you, you know, it's ridiculous. Everything posted on YouTube, that's his excuse for not examining the actual evidence that I presented. So the ad hominem attack is the one that I constantly run into. It's like, well, your source is no good. And therefore, because your source is not the official proclamation that is being touted in the media, it therefore can't be good. So using the ad hominem attack is a way of disputing anyone who is not the mainstream thing. And it's like, well, okay, you could have disputed Galileo also using that ad hominem attack and said, well, you're, you know, you've got the church and the entire 
scientific community against you and the earth therefore is at the center of the universe. So that's the ad hominem thing. And then the other example I wanted to use was this use of the term disinformation. Okay, so that's the appeal to authority. People run around and they'll say, well, and again, I'll bring up the Joe Rogan example because it's such a good one. What we need, we, should, we need to stop Joe Rogan because he's spewing disinformation. And it's like, okay, well, somebody told you what disinformation is. That's not, that's not an emotional, that's not an, that's not an appeal to your emotions, or that's not somebody giving me some kind of a valid emotional reason to be upset about something or whatever. That's somebody saying, you can't, you know, I, I believe that this is disinformation. Well, why do you believe it's disinformation? Well, they don't get to that. They're not going to talk about that. Okay. Uh, somebody here is calling me out saying sticks and stones. I just said the same thing about Snopes. So I made a derogatory statement about Snopes. If somebody wants to take me offline afterwards uh, and, and I can show you what's wrong with Snopes, there's a whole bunch of stuff uh, that Snopes publishes that is clearly... <laughs> politically motivated. But anyway, I don't want to get into that in this discussion here. So somebody doing ad hominem attacks and somebody appealing to authority when they themselves do not understand the topic and they just say, well, they, you know, it's, it really kind of frightens me that the whole population in the United States now, at least probably globally, has been trained to use this term disinformation as though they could discern what disinformation is. So definitely call people out when they use this kind of garbage on you. And a couple of people brought up some good points in the comments that I want to to get to too. First, to that point about the the comment about Snopes, it's important to remember too that just because one can criticize illogically doesn't mean that one shouldn't criticize logically. I do think that it's important, as we've all been doing throughout this entire conversation, right? It is important to still criticize sources of information and, you know, specific entities that that either provide the information or in Snopes cases, fact checks and, and things like that. But this is one instance where it is important to be logical and it is important not to, as, as Dave was bringing up, criticize the arguments of those sources based on the the source itself and instead criticize the argument that they're making. Um, and so with Snopes, the approach would be to point to examples where Snopes has gotten it wrong and oftentimes drastically so, which, as Dave was pointing out, people have done previously. Whereas with something like YouTube, yeah, criticizing an entire platform, essentially, just because of particular videos or particular people. I mean, the reality is that YouTube and the internet as a whole, there's going to be a lot of garbage and there is going to be a lot of fake information and and you know, propaganda and things like that. So we should still stay vigilant and criticize these things. The other thing that someone brought up in the comments is that both people on the left and people on the right can make logically sound arguments. And they also just said that flat earthers can make logical arguments too, by the way. And this is an important point too, is that logic alone does not... A lot of people, this is kind of what I was trying to get at earlier, is that a lot of people will try to resort to focusing solely on whether or not a statement is logical. And that often isn't enough. I mean, that is, it is a fantastic place to start. If, you're, if your argument is not logical and you are trying to base policy on it and you are trying to enforce your will on other people based on it, that is an excellent place to start and poke holes in it and, and to criticize it. But the reality is that it could be perfectly logical and still be a shitty policy or a shitty argument. It could still lead to a lot of damage. 
And there could be a logical argument behind every position that you could take on, on an issue, or at least several conflicting positions. And I think this is an example where you need to factor in other things other than simply logic. I This is one of the reasons that I was excited to talk about this topic. I personally always lean very heavily towards logic and and science and data and, you know, try to remain less emotionally attached to some of these issues and and less, I I don't know, I I try to root my positions in logic. and, And I've realized that there are times where, especially when you're not in a formal debate or formal setting where you are basing policy or basing decisions on the content of that discussion, There are times where it is more practical to take a slightly less logically driven approach to that conversation. I mean, if someone is very emotionally invested in an issue, we talked about this when we were talking about credibility of news sources and and things in one of the previous episodes to where people are not good at being emotional and logical at the same time. And so if someone is making an an emotional case for their argument, for their position on a certain issue, and you're having a discussion with this person, and you call them out and say, well, that's an, that's an appeal to emotion and, and your argument is wrong and therefore you lose and I win. You may end the discussion and you may have a valid point that your more logically rooted position is more valid than their emotionally rooted position. But that person thinks that you're a jackass and that person thinks that now you are completely disregarding the other very real emotional components of that issue. This isn't to say to do away with all logic in in your conversations, but I do think that there is a time and a place. And like Dave said, Dave made a very good point that if it is being used against you, there is very good reason to point it out. But I think there are times where it's it's less important. We did have a comment that said, if something is built upon logical fallacy, it doesn't really stand. However, if someone says logical fallacy, just circling around an argument means something, they are just wrong. Um, and then someone else said, you have to be aware of the emotional state of the person you are interacting with. And that's not always easy, right? It's It's not easy, especially if you don't know the person as well. Even if you do, right? sometimes you don't know their feelings on a lot of these issues. And there are issues that even if someone has a very logical underpinning for their argument and their rationale, it is still an emotional issue for them. They're just not choosing to use an emotional rationale during their argument, if that makes sense. Well, I find it really interesting that you're bringing this up because I'm in the middle of reading a book called How to Have Impossible Conversations. It's written by a guy named Peter. Boghossian, I probably didn't pronounce that correctly, but it's called How to Have Impossible Conversations. And it's very interesting and it really gets into this. And it's like, it's okay, you don't want to be a jerk when you're arguing with someone and you don't want to tromp over other people who feel emotionally about something. Um, But the problem I have with logical fallacies is when somebody uses a logical fallacy to actually just simply avoid discussing the topic altogether, um, you can't have a discussion about a rational discussion about, you know, we we have the population has been terrorized with climate change, for example. The vast majority of people don't have the slightest idea how temperature data was collected during the 20th century, what kind of devices were used, 
um, how NASA massages that data and does not present raw data to the public and how the, the data coming out of NASA and NOAA looks suspiciously like it was is in, you know, manipulated to achieve a certain purpose, et cetera. We, okay, if you're going to argue with a person who's been terrorized with this and, and, and is like in an emotional meltdown because we're, got, we're all going to die in 10 years, I don't see how you can have an, an, a, a rational conversation with a person like that in the first place. And if someone ex, is explicitly using these logical fallacies like the ad hominem attacks and the appeal to authority and all this to simply avoid having the conversation that does not want to get into the detail that would be necessary. Now, I'm willing to have a conversation on these topics with anybody, but they have to be willing to get into the detail and talk at some reasonable level where they can make some kind of rational argument. Most people just dump these logical fallacies on me and it's like, Conversation's over. I don't. I don't have anything to actually say about the data that you've presented. Um, conversation's just over. I've had conversations with people who have done the same, and it's often about some of these sensitive topics. Some of the ones that we specifically cover on this podcast to talk about. And this is why before we before we started recording, I try to give everyone a brief, you know, reminder that this podcast, while it is meant to encourage free speech, and I'm encouraging everyone to say what needs saying, that we do still try to keep it civil and so keep the ad hominem and personal attacks and things out. These topics generate a lot of these kinds of logical fallacies and ad hominem personal attacks. And I've experienced that as well. There is one person in particular, I won't name names or anything, obviously. This person and I had a conversation about Black Lives Matter. And this person is much, much more left-leaning than I am, much more very far in the progressive left and has very different views than I do on Black Lives Matter as a movement, as an organization, what have you. Long story short, we had a civil conversation about Black Lives Matter, a relevant topic, and it ended with, well, you're racist. And I've gotten similar critiques when saying that the government shouldn't intervene in banning certain symbols regarding Nazi symbology or Confederate flags or other symbols associated with hate because the government's place isn't to censor there. It's not to infringe on the free speech, even if they're horrible things. You know, it kind of leads immediately to the, well, you're racist. And the, the reason I bring this story up is that person that I was having this conversation with about Black Lives Matter after all this, after she made those comments and, and claimed that I was racist and whatnot, I responded, continuing the conversation. She was shocked that I was willing then to, to continue talking. And so this goes to your point, Dave, that a lot of times these are thrown out there to shut the conversation down. What I believe this person was assuming a normal reaction would be, would be, oh, well, this person just thinks I'm racist. Well, screw it. I'm done talking. I'm done having a conversation. And to be honest, that's a legitimate reaction um, because that person clearly, like you said, Dave, is, is weaponizing logical fallacies, is weaponing ad hominem attacks, is clearly not entering that conversation with good intentions, with the intention to maybe not come together, but to discuss an area of disagreement. It is important to have one of two approaches, and it depends on the situation. I'm not trying to say that you should always resort to one or the other of these, but either continuing the conversation or straight up point out that logical fallacy, point out the attack and, and make it clear um, because it's not a fair tactic. It's like someone commented earlier, it's trying to win a conversation by cheating. 
without trying to paint with too broad of a brush, these are the types of people who refuse to come on podcasts like this. These are people that I've invited numerous times to have conversations about topics like this that, as you've all seen tonight, yeah, we don't always agree. The anonymous person that was speaking before got into some disagreements with some people in the comments, even got a little heated. We had some disagreements on some stuff that Dave was saying. Dave pushed back against some stuff that I was saying. That's okay. And that's natural and healthy for a conversation. And so all that to say that logical fallacies are important to be aware of, to recognize. Maybe in certain circumstances, they're not the top priority to point out, but in others, they absolutely are important to nip in the bud and, and get rid of because they're not healthy for conversation around touchy topics like this. Can I add another aspect to this? Of course. Yeah. Which is, is also just simply to pick your arguments or pick your um, adversaries. Um, a, a highly emotional person on a topic like Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter is, is a topic that even has multiple meanings and it's hard to pin down. Are you talking about the organization called Black Lives Matter? Are you talking about the general concept? Anyway, I don't want to get into that, but having an, a, an argument with a highly emotionalized person or a terrorized person, someone who's been terrorized in the media to be terrified of climate change or of COVID or whatever, is just not productive. And there are people with whom I simply refuse to discuss any kind of political topic because I know that they're not rational and it's not going to produce anything beneficial. So you can avoid the whole ad hominem problem or the whole logical fallacy problem by just simply not having the argument with them in the first place, you're not going to win. <laughs> and you're not going to learn anything also. If I would learn something, or I don't have to win, if, some, if somebody would come and inform me and, and show me why I'm wrong, or at least give me another angle to the discussion that I hadn't thought of before, well, I would find that productive. But a highly emotional person who's in a state of terror is not going to, um, it's not going to, it's not going to be worthwhile to argue with. Yeah, well put. Um, okay, so I mean, on that note, I think that we've been talking for quite a while. I'm sure that we'll come back to logical fallacies in future episodes. Um, and, and we can kind of revisit some of these topics. I'm sure that by the next time we're recording the situation in Ukraine and Russia won't, it will at least still have an impact if not still be ongoing. So I'm sure we can return to some of these topics as well. So with that, we'll call it a close for tonight. Thank you all for joining the conversation and we'll talk to you next time. There's just a deliberate effort to block the kind of findings that I've published. And I'm not the only one that's being blocked. This type of authoritarian or tyrannical behavior can't just go away without people noticing. They don't like what you're saying, and therefore they're going to silence you. Peer review has really broken down. If there is no spirit of liberty, as Learned Hand once said, behind the law, the parchment is never going to survive. If they express their views, they may find themselves not getting a degree or unwelcome in their classes. The reason he took his own life was because of this cancel culture campaign where parents are saying, no, my kid's not putting this on their face. Through that, they've been led to, well, listen, why are you guys teaching critical theory? The science upon which these regulations are based is wrong. 
If we lose free speech, we are done for. Academia Uncensored, the Say What Need Saying podcast.